MSW Media. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the MSW Book Club. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Dana Goldberg. And for the next seven Sundays, we'll be discussing Mary Trump's new book called The Reckoning, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding Ways to Heal. The first six episodes, Dana, will be about the book, right? Mm -hmm. And then our final episode, we're going to bring Mary back in, maybe some other special guests, I don't know, to answer some Patreon questions. So you should be able to find that form to submit questions on the Patreon page at patreon.com slash MullerSheWrote. Uh, you can sign up to be a patron for as little as three bucks a month. And not only will that get you access to the form to submit your questions, you'll get ad-free episodes of this series and the series Muller She Wrote and The Daily Beans, plus access to our weekly Zoom happy hours and invites to meetups in cities that we travel to. It's a lot of fun. You get so many things for $3. So many. Um, so many. Now, uh, so how, how, how are you? How's your weekend been so far, Dana? You know what? It's actually been great. I did a uh, virtual conference. One of my live shows got um, moved to virtual instead of being canceled, which was nice. So I got to um, host a, a weekend of panels with uh, Governor Whitmer and uh, Senator Tammy Baldwin and um, all of these people for outgiving. It's the Tim Gill Foundation. Oh, amazing. That's so cool. Yeah. So in all of these youth, these like LGBTQ youth, these trans youth and non-binary youth, and oh, I tell you what, Whitney's right, the children are our future. I still have a lot of hope that they're going to lead us to where we need to be because, man, are they fired up. Future looks bright. It does. Uh, unlike the past, which we're going to dig into. Oh, holy crap. <laughs> in <Yep>. this book. <laughs> um, and the way that Mary put this together, it's just brilliant, the way that she has drawn these lines from the beginning of the history of our country through today. Um, yeah. We're going to break down this book um, in a few different chapters, right? Today we're going to cover the introduction in chapter one, which is the first 40 pages or so. Next week we'll cover chapters two and three. And then the week after that we'll do four and five, and then six and seven. And then we're just going to do one chapter, chapter eight in episode five. And then finally, chapter nine and the epilogue we'll cover in the final episode six. And then, of course, as I said, episode seven will be the Q&A with Mary Trump. So, uh, Dana, let's, let's jump into this book. Again, The Reckoning. We're doing the first 40 pages today, the introduction, chapter one. Let's jump in with the introduction. You got it. AG, so the insurrection on January 6th, it shouldn't have come as a surprise given the months of stoking election fraud and fear from Uncle Donald uh, participated in during the lead up. And then she wonders whether the past four years have made our nation collective, our national collective trauma 
pushed us further from our goal or more of a more perfect union or whether they just sort of brought to life that we were never as close as that, you know, never closest to an ideal America as we thought we were. So that is a really interesting uh, thing to start with. Yeah. And it makes me think of, you remember how many times we've heard with all these videos, particularly the video that came out um, uh, of the murder of George Floyd, but all of these videos that we've been seeing, you know, how, how people have said, look, this isn't new. This has always been happening. We're just only seeing about it. And that's kind of what she's wondering about, about what happened with the insurrection. And when she speaks of the national collective trauma, she reminds us that this country was born out of trauma, the trauma inflicted on indigenous people. Then the trauma quote sustained by the generations that have succeeded the kidnapped um, and enslaved Africans who had been brought to a continent, both foreign and hostile unquote, and the trauma of those that stood idly by when it all happened, right? The good, the good people who do nothing, mm-hmm. not to mention those who intentionally perpetuated the system that kept going that benefited them and she even goes as far as she goes as far as to add a footnote on the first page that says when she uses the pronoun we she's generally referring to white americans noting it would be disingenuous for her to pretend she hasn't benefited from the system that kept white people at the top of the racial hierarchy that we invented absolutely i mean she basically tells us that in order to understand our current situation We have to understand the impact of those early traumas. So she then reminds us that the traumatic events, uh, they don't have to be singular. Like for any of us, short-term things like a car accident or an assault, you know, those sorts of things, trauma can happen slowly over time, just like uh, the effects from COVID. Right. So it's not, it doesn't have to be just that, like that one traumatic event or a series of traumatic events, right? Um, And I remember when you and I spoke to Mary before the election, during the worst of the pandemic at the time. And we talked about how having nothing to look forward to was so bad for our mental health. It was difficult to deal with that. And it would be hard to know the mental health impact of, of being futureless, like while, yeah. while we were in it. Right. And here in the introduction, just like we talked about on Friday in the beans with Mary, she talks about, you know, how we couldn't see past November 3rd. She saw November 3rd as like this black, this monolith, this wall, um, and that you know the election on November third, and how it was just out there in our future, like this, like this, blocking us from thinking beyond it. Absolutely, and not not only that, like how even after the election we had to deal with this red mirage. We talked about this where we waited, like for the mail-in ballots to be counted, and didn't know the outcome until several days later, and we were just watching every minute. And how Donald, of course, used that time, and she spoke about this before, to convince everyone that this election was being stolen from him as those votes came in because he started to see it turn. Yeah, but he knew that that was going to happen. And and Dana, on the beans leading up to the election, you and I had warned about the red mirage, but I was mm-hmm. we were still biting our nails as it happened. Oh, yeah. Uh, and as the weeks passed, he continued to push the big lie. And then she, she drops this truth. Mary drops this truth. Quote, to be traumatized is to be initiated into a world without trust. And uh, that trauma, of course, can be compounded by other traumas. In our case, we had COVID coupled with the insurrection that exposed how fragile our democracy and the American experiment actually are. Well, she also argues uh, right here in the book that when many people said, and this is also a quote, this is not who we are, that's actually 
I hate to say it, and you know, it's exactly who we are. Mm -hmm. And mostly this is due to our outdated political system that allows the minority party to keep a stranglehold on the rest of us. We've got gerrymandering, the Electoral College, Republicans continuing to win presidential elections without winning the popular fucking vote. Mm -hmm. And half of the Senate, I mean, if you think about it, half of the Senate represents 41 million fewer constituents than the other half. Yeah, and I think it's so important that, that Mary brings that up here. And she reminds us that Donald being able to get into the Oval Office is a symptom of a much bigger problem, a disease, <laughs> she says, that's plagued us from our inception as a nation. And here, I learned something about Mary I didn't know. After the April 2017 birthday at the White House for her aunts, Marianne and Elizabeth, that she talked about yeah. in her first book. Remember how she's like, I got there, I got to the Trump Hotel, I opened the Trump wine, I put it in my Trump <laughs> veins. And that's the party she's referring to. But a couple of weeks after that, Mary left New York for a treatment center in Tucson that specialized in PTSD, uh, excavating decades-old wounds and trying to figure out why my uncle Donald's elevation to the White House had so undone me. I didn't know that about her. This is also very interesting because even though they didn't use last names at the facility in Tucson, Mary found it unthinkable that anyone should find out who she was because, I mean, she didn't want to be associated. She talks here on page seven in the book about how even long before Donald entered politics, she never admitted to anyone that she belonged to the Trump family. She would actually often say, nope, no relation when asked. Uh, but during those weeks in Tucson, she faced her trauma instead of hiding behind what she calls a shield of anger. And that takes courage. That's so fucking courageous. Yeah, it's it's not, nor is it ever easy. And at, at, at the end of her time there, she writes that she booked a 5 a.m. flight out and she was staying in a hotel uh, that last night she was in Tucson. And she's wa she while she was waiting for the airport shuttle in the lobby of the hotel at 3.30 in the morning, uh, the bank of five televisions were tuned to five different channels and Donald was on all of them. Ugh. And she talks about how even though her original trauma occurred when she was very young, Donald was definitely a trigger for, for her PTSD. And now he's a trigger for millions of people's mm. PTSD, let's be honest. Yep. So Mary closes the introduction by reminding us that the history of all the trauma in the country is connected and that our current trauma the current trauma is a culmination of our history. So without looking at our current situation through the lens of that, um, you know, what has shaped us as a nation, we can't fully understand how we got here. And that's the goal of the book. So to define trauma as it relates to us today and understand how our trauma has metastasized from generation to generation. So that's so we can find a better way to move forward. That's the only way. We can't change the past. We can only do better moving forward. Right. And much like her time in Tucson, you know, she had to work back through all of the previous trauma to understand the current trauma. And that's what she does in this book. And she has a unique ability to do that because, first of all, she knows the history and nature of Donald, right? Mm -hmm. She also has a PhD in psychology. She, she ha and she has personal experience with, with trauma and PTSD. And she reminds us that the danger, although the danger has abated, it, it, it hasn't passed, right? And, and that brings us to part one, which is a short history of American failure, 1865 to 2020, all right, Dana, we got to take a quick pause for a break. Remember, if you're a patron, you will get these episodes ad-free. Uh, otherwise, stick around. We'll be right back after this. 
Hey everybody, it's AG. Thanks for supporting Muller She Wrote and the MSW Book Club. I found an incredible website you have to check out. It is called nuts.com. It's the best kept secret for savvy snackers across the country. They've got an incredible variety of high quality delicious snacks available like white chocolate toffee cashews, which are so good, bourbon pecans, crystallized ginger and honey sesame sticks. It's amazing. Nuts.com isn't just for nut lovers, by the way. It is your one-stop online pantry shop too. They've got so many tasty snacks and pantry items, including candies and dried fruits, baking mixes, pasta, and more. I get all kinds of goodies from nuts.com. It is the simple and convenient way to have nutritious, delicious, healthy nuts, dried fruit, flowers, grains, beans, beans, and so many other high-quality foods delivered straight to your door. With over 4,000 products to choose from, including delicious, healthy, kid-friendly snacks like dried strawberries, which are so good, those are my favorite, and custom trail mix. Plus, all the raw, organic, roasted, salted, and candied nuts you can imagine. Even chocolate-dipped nuts. Plus, gluten-free and vegan options, too, with super-fast delivery. Most orders ship the same day. New Nuts.com customers get free shipping on your first order when you text MSW to 64,000. So, right now, just text MSW MSW to 64,000 to get free shipping on your first order of nuts.com. That's MSW to 64,000. Terms apply. Available at nuts.com slash terms. All right, everybody, welcome back. Chapter one is tough to get through. It's called atrocities, but we need to get through it just like Mary got through it in Tucson. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. When I was congratulating her on the book when we first spoke and I knew she was writing a second one, she's like, don't, just wait. I'm not sure how people are going to take this one. I think it's going to piss off a lot of white people because she really gets into this. So Mary opens up this chapter with the story of the Holberts. And now this is just one among countless lynchings between 1865 and 1950 when more than 6,500 black men, women, and children were murdered. And the true number likely being much higher than that. Those are the ones that they, they were accounted for. And we should give some content warning here. So we, as you're listening, uh, we won't go into extreme detail, but we encourage you to read this story, which starts on page 13. Yeah. And, and Luther Holbert was accused of murdering a plantation owner, and mm-hmm. his wife was accused of nothing. But he and his wife were hunted by a white mob and cornered. Then they were dragged out from where they were found to a public place where they were hung and tortured publicly before actually being burned alive. And this incident, uh, you know, isn't isolated, nor did it take place in the antebellum South. It was this was 1904, right? Three decades after the end of the Civil War and just a year before Mary's grandfather was born. Uh, Of course, no one that participated in that lynching was held accountable. Um, And this is just, again, one of many stories illustrating the failures of Reconstruction. And that's kind of what the the bulk of this chapter is about, Reconstruction and the failures of Reconstruction and how it left the path open for shit like this. Exactly. So the post-war leniency of the leaders of the Confederacy, so the lack of protection for free black men and women, and the backslide into pre-war racism weren't surprising but impact all of us to this very day. Mary talks about not only do those failures help explain why we're so divided, they also explain why we continue to hate each other so deeply and so much. Mm, Yeah, and that that lack of accountability for the the Confederates looms today as we wait for the Department of Justice to hold the past administration and those that participated in and directed the insurrection on January 6th accountable, right? I mean, that's one of the first big ties from then and now that that i'm seeing totally and we have to remember reconstruction started off promising Mm 
Uh, but the language in Lincoln's proclamation of Reconstruction, it didn't bode well for an integrated democracy because it still allowed states to deal with free black men and women in a way that was, quote, consistent with their present condition as a laboring, landless, and homeless class. That was part of this problem. So the pro-abolition Republican Party of that time felt that sustained assistance was the answer. Uh, and the Freedmen's Bureau was established in 1865 to do just that. Yep, yep. This is the this is the big thing, right? This is the uh, the assistance program that was there to help with Reconstruction, the Freedmen's Bureau, and their charter included providing food and fuel and aid. It established schools. It moderated disputes uh, between blacks and whites. It developed a system of free labor and worked to ensure equal justice. And General Sherman at the time tasked General Howard with uh, giving Southern blacks access to land as part of the Freedmen's Mandate, saying that without land, free people that, that free people can work and use to sustain themselves, the yoke of slavery couldn't be lifted, right? That's what was like the mm-hmm. crux of it. And that's when Sherman issued Special Field Order 15, what we know as 40 acres and a mule. 400,000 acres from Charleston to Jacksonville on the coast had been divided into 40-acre plots to settle freedmen, freedmen and freedwomen. Uh, but the assassination of Lincoln... Uh, kind of through that reconstruction and with all the the entire reconstruction into turmoil. And Mary also reminds us that after the war, after the end of the war, 80% of black population, 80% was illiterate from and and former slave uh, John W. Field said that, quote, our ignorance was the greatest hold the South had on us. And it's true. And although education was important back then, Congress did not provide the funds to establish them. So it became clear that the single most important task for extending gains was basically to get black men elected at all levels of government. And then after the 15th Amendment was ratified in 1870, more than 2,000 black men succeeded in running for and winning elected office. Yep, yep. But without a clear plan for Reconstruction from Lincoln before his assassination, mm-hmm. you know, many despaired the outcome of an integrated democracy. Uh, Mary then couples that issue, the fact that there was no clear plan for Reconstruction, with the fact that it was Andrew Johnson that presided over the first years of Reconstruction. Johnson was a slave owner, uh, and as soon as he took office, he began pardoning Confederates. And by 1866, he had issued over 7,000 pardons. Holy shit. Yeah. He, he actually he also overturned Sherman's order to issue land to freemen, effectively basically evicting families that had been settled there. He he returned that land to pardon Confederates, so that was part of it. And by 1870, only one percent of freedmen owned land. That's it. And it was in that context that Congress passed the Civil Rights Act in 1866, which granted Black Americans citizenship. So Johnson vetoed that bill. As she talks about, Congress overrode the veto, uh, but the damage of the rhetoric and the actions by Johnson, it was done. It was set in history. Yeah, like can't unring the bell. And then Mary shares part of Andrew Johnson's State of the Union address in 1867. Let me just read this little part that she shares. It's on page 22. Quote, if anything can be proved by known facts, if all reasoning upon evidence is not abandoned, it must be acknowledged that in the progress of nations, Negroes have shown less capacity for government than any other race of people. No independent government of any form has ever been successful in their hands. On the contrary, whenever they have been left to their own devices, they have shown constant tendency to relapse into barbarism. In the southern states, however, Congress has undertaken to confer upon them the privilege of the ballot, 
just released from slavery, it may be doubted whether as a class they know more than their ancestors how to organize and regulate civil society. Uh, the attempt to place the white population under the domination of persons of color in the South has impaired, if not destroyed, the kindly relations that had previously existed between them. He actually said that. And mutual distrust has engendered a feeling of animosity, which leading, in some instances, to collision and bloodshed, has prevented that cooperation between the two races so essential to the success of industrial enterprise in the southern states. That was coming from the president who was supposed to be overseeing Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That speech, it gave a boost to Confederates who were hell-bent on reestablishing the old labor order, and Andrew Johnson seemed content to encourage that. And, of course, the lack of accountability in the years of Reconstruction enabled the the continuance of coerced coerced labor and white supremacy. And that that word is fitting. It's exactly what this is. It was white supremacy. Yeah, and that's kind of, you know, I mean, sort of the birth. And, and, And Mary breaks in here to talk about the atrocities of Middle Passage, the Middle Passage and slavery. And how it's nearly impossible to convey the horrors of the Middle Passage. She talks about how New York was the slave capital of the colonies for 150 years. A lot of people forget about that or didn't know. Survivors of the Middle Passage were stripped of their language, their identity, and their status as a slave was permanent and inherited from generation to generation. And this is of note, quote, It was necessary to the project of slavery that whites dehumanize blacks in any way they could to rationalize it. So that dehumanization and the rationalization included religious beliefs, paternalism, even pseudoscientific considerations. So the idea that black people had no need for human attachment, that allowed for separation of families. Sound familiar, A.G.? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the project uh, to dehumanize and subjugate black men, women, and children, they had been going on for a long time, and it reached the height of hypocrisy during the Reconstruction. Yeah, and while the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments freed 4 million people, made them U.S. citizens, and extended the franchise to all freed men, and opened the door for a truly biracial democracy, the way they were written, though, coupled with increasing hostility from the North and all this bullshit that Johnson was talking about and opportunism in the South, that road was, quote, paved for future abuses and backsliding. So this is, Mary, it's very specific here about the language. Nowhere in the amendments, nowhere was language forbidding limits on voting rights. There wasn't any language forbidding limits on voting rights. There was nothing about racial equity. There was nothing that granted black people the right to hold office. But it's a phrase in the 13th Amendment that would pro the mo- that would, this would prove the most damage. Neither slavery, no involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States. If you've seen the movie 13, Mm. about the 13th Amendment, this all makes total sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's that clause, right? Quote, except as punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, that Mary says would prove to be the fatal blow to the prospect of equality and democracy. That left the door wide open for laws that led to the expansion of convict leasing in the South, where, mm-hmm. where prisoners were leased by the state to work on plantations for free. Hello, welcome back, slavery. Totally, because if you arrest them and they go into the system, that makes free labor again. Mm-hmm. All of these slave owners lost their free labor. Mm-hmm. 
And that fucker Larry Elder, who's running for the governorship in California, this is why you have to get out and vote, he thinks that slave owners should get reparations, not slaves. It makes my head explode. Okay, sorry, but... As we were talking about, the laws were passed to expand that labor force, including vagrancy and loitering laws. Like, literally just loitering. They were arresting people for just standing around. Mm -hmm. Now, as historian Leon F. Litwack wrote, this is a quote. Three. This law, what's that? That's supposed to be three there, not the. Oh, okay. Sorry. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Back in three. I'm sorry. These. It's supposed to be these. Yeah, Okay. Back in three, two. These laws discriminated against them. The courts upheld a double standard of justice, and the police acted as enforcers. And I think we can see the connections from then to now, right? Mm, And while coercion of black labor was on the rise, so was violence against Southern blacks. And as Reconstruction trudged along, the Freeman's Bureau was really the only thing standing between Southern Blacks and the violence inflicted by Southern whites. And we have to remember the police that we just talked about was created out of, they were created to protect property. Yeah. Well, no black people owned property. So it was a racist institution from the beginning. Yeah, that's the birth of the police. Uh, exactly. Is, is during the, and, and the numbers of black men and women and children lost during that period is absolutely incalculable, Mary writes. And Senator Charles Sumner from Massachusetts wanted to make the Freedmen's Bureau a permanent thing, but a lot of other Republican senators believed that it would make freedmen and freedwomen dependent on the state. Again, a very familiar political talking point still alive and well today. Absolutely. So Mary says, A.G., there's two events, two events in 1896 and in 1898 illustrated how spectacularly Reconstruction had failed. The first one was the Supreme Court decision, Plessy versus Ferguson, which upheld the constitutionality of segregation as long as segregated facilities were, quote, equal. And then, two years later, an 88-foot-tall Confederate monument was erected in Montgomery, Alabama, the cornerstone of which was laid by Jefferson Davis, who was out on bond and pardoned by Andrew Johnson, one of those many numbers we talked about. It was a massive symbol of white supremacy there. Yeah, yeah, and by 1908... Ten states had written laws that include in, into their constitutions that included poll taxes, literacy tests, and other impediments to voting that overwhelmingly disenfranchised blacks. Uh, sharecropping was on the rise, leased convicts like we talked about, lack of access to voting. Everything continued to be stacked against black Americans' full entry into American society. Segregation persisted, and then school segregation followed housing segregation, and, you know, just it just kept snowballing. On and on and on, yeah. So our friend wraps up this chapter saying, quote, from the moment the Civil War ended, this country made a choice to undermine and reverse the very cause for which that war was fought. It took only 12 years to run its course, and if in that short span of time, a still deeply divided country could undo and emerge united from over two and a half centuries prejudices and the culture, institutions, and lies that perpetrated them. Yeah, 12 years to undo 250 years. And then Mm -hmm. uh, Mary talks a little bit about Brown v. Board, Brown v. Board of Education, which Mm -hmm. actually didn't even really fully overturn Plessy versus Ferguson. Um, Talks about the civil rights movement gaining momentum. Progress was made a little with the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And she says, but the fight was just beginning. And we know because in 2013 and again this past year, Voting Rights Act of 1965 has pretty much been obliterated. 
Yeah. The Supreme Court did a hell of a job gutting that. Yeah. And that that brings us to the end of chapter one. And uh, we will continue next week with chapters two and three called Impunity and American Carnage. Dana, uh, it's seriously incredible the connective tissue that exists between some of the standout history of Reconstruction and, what, and what's happening today. We have criminalization of like marijuana, for example, voter suppression laws all over the country mm-hmm. right now, dehumanization and family separation. Um, we haven't learned from our past, clearly. And now there's this huge push to stop teaching history in hopes that we'll not see they're using the same old rhetoric. Books like this, books like The Reckoning, this is what should be in the schools. Yeah. This is what should be taught. It's such an honest telling of history in a way that is like, this did not go well. It also, you know, I don't, one of the things I can think of in in present day, and you'll get this is like, don't ask, don't tell when Clinton put that into, you know, it was done in the thought to make things better. It didn't make things better because it wasn't a good compromise. So through history, you've seen this, even like during the reconstruction, as we talked about, we had a president that was writing letters like you read There was no possible way this could have had the outcome that the people who really wanted to end slavery and have Reconstruction successful could have intended, not when it was being undermined at every step. Yeah, no, and and the the miseducation uh, today just covers up the rhetoric that, and, and, and the same rhetoric that caused Reconstruction to fail is alive and well today. Yeah. The same exact rhetoric. And, and of course, they don't want anybody to know that. Yeah, it's just, I, I'm so glad we have this book. I'm so glad she took the time to write it. I know it was not an easy task, meaning it, this was very emotional for her. We've talked about it. You you she, you she and she have spoken about it in depth. Um, but to have this book out here and the vulnerability behind it, I'm so glad that she... Uh, that she did she wrote this because I think it's really it's a good it's an important read same it's an important read for the white people of this country yeah whether you think you are woke and the right side of history and fighting uh, for what is right and a lot of us are especially who listen to this podcast and our dear family but there are still things we can do better moving forward and we're gonna take a deep dive into that as we continue this book yeah and it's hard to read but as Mary said just like trauma if you ignore it and bury it, it's going to bubble up and there will be physiological and psychological reactions to, to that. The only way you can actually deal with and even heal trauma is to face it. And I think that that's, again, why this book is so important because we all want to move forward. But, you know, we, we can't do that and ignore the past. A hundred percent. Well said, my friend. Well said. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dana. I'm so glad you're doing this book with me. And uh, we'll be back next Sunday with chapters two and three. And um, uh, do you have any uh, final thoughts before we get out of here for the week? No, I just I love that you all are taking the time to listen to this. Um, I hope that you're not just listening, that you've actually gone out and purchased a copy. We want to support our dear friend and uh, our ally in this fight. So if you haven't actually purchased a copy, either uh, digitally or paperback, not paperback, hardcover, uh, please do it. The number is important. And we want to kick Tucker Carlson out of his fucking spot. We always want to fucking do that. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I will say there's a lot. I mean, we're just talking about sort of the basic con- the constructs of this book and, and the, 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 the topics that, that she covers. The, the, the actual writing of these stories and of, uh, of the issues is 
brilliantly done and it needs to be read. So yeah, I definitely encourage everybody yeah. to pick it up. All right, everybody. All right. Until next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk uh, next Sunday again, chapters two and three. Until then, take care of each other. Take care of yourselves. Take care of the planet and take care of your mental health. I've been Allison Gill. And I've been Dana Goldberg. And this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. <laughs>